Hey guys, didn't you want to record an episode? Uh, what was in that martini? Please, don't make us drink anything. Wait, what was it? Something secret agent? Yeah, yeah, by that, that... Wait, 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 wait. Something like, all these people had to be protected. Protection is the first necessity of opulence and luxury. They had to be protected, and their horses, carriages, houses, servants had to be protected, and the source of their wealth had to be protected, and the heart of the city, and the heart of the country. Oh, that sounds nice. I'm sure nothing bad is going to happen in this book. You're listening to Outside of a Dog, where we decide whether great literature is actually any good. Hello, my name is Jonas Hock. I'm Christian Schneider. Hello. And you're listening to Outside of a Dog, where, after recovering from last episode's excesses, we read The Secret Agent by Joseph Conrad. The book, in its full title, The Secret Agent, A Simple Tale, was published in 1907, though the story is set in 1886. And it refers back to an actual attack on the Greenwich Observatory in 1894. But based on this historical occurrence, Conrad weaves a tale of espionage, anarchists, and all kinds of political dealings behind the scenes. Joseph Conrad himself was actually born as Joseph Theodore Conrad Korzeniowski. He was born near Kiev, today Ukraine, back then the Russian Empire. He emigrated because uh, his parents were actually active in the Polish underground movement, trying to establish a Polish national state. He lived in France, firstly, and then came to England, actually, when he was a middle-aged man already. So English was, I think, his third or even fourth language. That kind of connects him to Nabokov, the same kind of development towards finally writing in English. And it is one of the reasons why I have a real affinity for Conrad because he is an outsider who came in from a different language, but I'm sure nobody would dispute that he really excelled, and nowadays he's one of the central figures of Victorian literature. The Secret Agent is also considered to be one of his masterworks. It is the story of Mr. Verloc, the titular secret agent. He has a shop in London um, where he mainly sells pornography, but he is also indeed a secret agent. He works for an embassy of some never quite defined European country. It's, it's very cleverly done that there's a lot of talk about Paris, but then maybe that was just where he had lived before then some of the names are quite Germanic, uh, but then some of the names are also quite clearly Russian, like Mr. Vladimir. It's somewhere foreign, European, Asiatic, dangerous. Definitely not English. And Verloc himself, though he is a British citizen, is also characterized as not an English gentleman. He's married, his wife has her mother and her, let's say, mentally challenged brother Stevie living with them, and her main duty is taking care of Stevie. Verloc is also active in the anarchist underground of London, where he meets with several very colourful characters, all of them united at least in the aim of trying to overthrow the system, of fighting it, but they are very ineffectual in that, and they are rather ludicrous characters, at least as they are portrayed. Verloc is, as mentioned, a double agent. He is supposed to be 
an agent provocateur to rile up these anarchists. And this is also how the novel starts. He is charged with the mission to get some sort of terrorist attack going, preferably against science, this very important topic for the Victorians, in order to bring some sort of panicky reaction to England, which will then help his foreign employers to bring England back into the ranks of the conservative European governments. Because England is just too damn liberal and they just leave their subjects too many freedoms and they're not quite repressive enough for the tastes of Mr. Vladimir at the embassy. Which reading it in the 21st century is very nicely ironic. But going back to the 19th century, Vlock is very unsure how to do that. He is a rather lazy character. Kind of stupid as well. And finally, he actually procures a bomb from a very shady character called the Professor. He considers himself to be superior to all other people simply because he's willing to blow himself up and whose only aim in life is to find the perfect detonator to terrorize. However, thing goes horribly wrong. Verloc uses Stevie to carry the bomb and Stevie manages to blow himself up. The whole plot is discovered by Scotland Yard and Verloc is found out. What is even worse, however, is that his wife finds out that Stevie is dead and Verloc is responsible. And in her grief and anger, she kills him. In the end, she tries to escape with one of her husband's co-conspirators, Ossipon, but he is rather cowardly and doesn't want to be involved with a murderer. So he leaves her, she commits suicide, and in the end, we and the characters that survive are left with the image of a rather bleak and nihilistic world where nothing really matters and all aims, political or private, are basically worthless. And this very dire view is something very surprising. When I started reading the novel, it was kind of fun. It begins with this description of Ossipon. No, not Ossipon. Uh, it begins with the description of Verloc and how he goes to the embassy to meet his superiors and how he's given this assignment. And then in the second chapter, we get a description of a meeting of this socialist anarchist cell and all the characters there are very colorful, very entertaining. The kind of ineffectual people who talk about revolution without ever actually doing anything. And at least I had the impression, oh, I, I know these people. I've met them on demonstration marches and I've read their blog posts about how it's necessary to start the revolution, but then they actually just went ahead and didn't do anything. And then suddenly in the third chapter, we hear about this gruesome bombing that has failed. And we hear how the attempted bomber blew himself up. And at first we're led to believe that it's Verloc. And as a very, very graphic description of the autopsy, uh, where the chief inspector, Heat, uh, actually sees that they had to pick some of the body up with a shovel. That was strangely reminiscent of the scene in Casino Royale, of course, where the two assassins accidentally blow themselves up and this ghastly rain of body parts rains around Bond. But generally, all the things in The Secret Agent have consequences. And these consequences are explored to their bitter ends. But because it's set up in the beginning so comically, I had a real emotional whiplash. I think this comic 
or humorous aspect to the novel actually fits the tone rather well because even in the beginning there's a certain irony to the descriptions. Conrad is very subtle in the way he judges characters and situations and often you only get a hint of what he's actually aiming at. So he describes the lock as, as we said, rather lazy and kind of narrow-minded character whose main aim is to live a peaceful life. But this is basically not possible in such a dangerous position. But he's never openly described as lazy or stupid. It's rather the actions that Conrad describes. And some of the descriptions very subtly hint at that as well. And I think that comical tone, that humorous tone, it which becomes very, very darkly humorous at times, fits this... What, what was the, uh, the sentence? Blah, 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 blah. Uh, it fits this descent into gruesomeness and gore. No, not gruesomeness and gore. <laughs> it fits this descent into nihilism, into tragedy, into a very bleak view. If we deal with characters that are humorously ineffectual, but purport to follow very lofty ideas, changing society, working for a better world, getting rid of the old tyranny. Well, then we already have this gap between what they want, what they say they want, and what the world actually looks like. And we have that with these political ideas. We have that also with the more domestic ideas of Mrs. Verloc, for example, it's never openly stated that she doesn't love her husband. But it's quite clear that he's a rather disgusting man and she only married him to have some sort of stable living environment for her brother Stevie. Um, there are hints that she was in love with another man, but she couldn't marry him because he didn't have the money to take care of Stevie. That, that is kind of stated rather explicitly towards the end after she has stabbed him in the heart. Exactly. And uh, then she thinks about, oh, I could have been happy with this butcher's son, but now nah, it wouldn't have worked. And now I've wasted seven years of my life on this horrible monster, Verloc. I think the only person who's really pure in some way is Stevie. Stevie is confused by the world around him and he doesn't understand all its complexity. But he has pure goals. For example, he's completely averse to any kind of wrongdoing, to any kind of pain. He even cannot bear when a carriage driver whips his horses because he realizes that the horses are in pain. So he's this rather sentimental Victorian figure of the noble imbecile, you could say. Of course, the whole scene with the horse reminds one maybe of the uh, madness of Friedrich Nietzsche in Turin, who also oh, yeah. couldn't bear the suffering of a horse. But I would disagree, actually. I would say Conrad's cynicism or his view for the bleakness of human character, it doesn't spare Stevie because Stevie, while he's certainly sort of pure at heart, pure imbecile or whatever you might call it, but as we know, this also manifests in aggression. Um, Stevie constantly gets into trouble because he can't bear the thought that there is unfairness in the world, that there is suffering in the world. And that also makes him help the lock in the end because he knows that he's carrying a bomb. The lock doesn't tell him, oh, this is just a harmless box of, of snuff or whatever. Stevie knows this is a bomb and it's there to hurt people 
in some way. No, though, actually, the plan was to bomb the observatory, not to hurt people. Obviously, but it's still a bomb. It's still there to destroy. And so even this figure of Stevie is somehow not that pure. There's a, a dark side to him. But that's not from within him. That's something that's an outside influence that's imposed upon him by this man who he was conditioned to respect and to hold in very high regard. His mother and his sister, the two most important people in his life, kept telling him, oh, you have to trust Mr. Verloc, you have to respect Mr. Verloc, because they thought, well, we are dependent on him, which they were, being women in the Victorian era in England. And so Stevie is brainwashed, basically, but his ideals, his motives are always pure. But that is shown to be... That's a good point to get more coffee. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, you were about to say why Stevie is an evil person. What Conrad shows is that being that pure is basically, in this world, the same as being an imbecile, as being somehow not quite there, that every person that wants to survive in this world needs to be tarnished in some way. Though actually they also succeed. The only person in the entire novel to succeed in some way is the professor. He is the one who at the end of the novel walks through the crowd despising all of humanity around him, and especially when you read it from a 21st century point of view, uh, before that he had this long speech where he explores this very Nietzschean thought, Nietzsche again, of, oh, strength is goodness and we, the strong, need to exterminate the weak. Uh, so he goes from being an anarchist to a proto-fascist, I would say. And then he ends the book on a very strong note as the only character. No. Definitely not, because what even the professor has his Achilles heel, and that is the masses. The one thing that makes him feel less superior is this idea that even though he thinks he's superior, maybe it doesn't matter because there are so many people, most of them just don't care what he thinks about or what he does. Yeah, but the, the, the exact words used to describe how he moves through this uh, crowd of people is that he moves through the crowd like a deadly plague. Uh, now, let me just see whether it actually says that. Yeah. He passed on, unsuspected and deadly, like a pest in the street full of men. So he has this potential to kill all the people around him, like a pest, like a plague, like an illness that exterminates millions. As indeed in the 20th century, only 10 years after the novel was published, the Spanish flu killed millions of people, or people like the professor killed hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, and continue to this day. But considering the first scene where we meet the professor, where he has the confrontation with Chief Inspector Heat, we know that the one thing that he can't abide is this idea of being insignificant, that the masses are too large, that even if he blows himself up or has the potential to blow himself and others up, it will not stop. People will go on. Society will go on. So the idea of him moving through the masses at the same time is to him not a very positive idea. If it says in the end here, nobody looked at him, that's the worst he can imagine. That nobody knows what power he has because the power he gets is the power that people know. This guy is beyond our touch. This guy will stop at nothing to blow himself up. So I would say not the professor is the one character who 
ends the novel on a positive note, my candidate would be the assistant commissioner, the boss of Heat, the kind of quintessential figure of the establishment, because he really gets what he wants. He His aims are not to involve uh, Mike... Michaelis? Michaelis? Um, Michaelis. Michaelis. Michaelis? Michaelis? <laughs> the, the, the fat guy with M. The ticket of leave apostle. Yeah. Uh, another ineffectual revolutionary. Actually one of the few somehow sympathetic characters. Somehow sympathetic characters? You mean pathetic characters? Yeah, but that's the same thing in Conrad's world. Yeah, but... Come on, he is described in such grotesque terms that he went to prison, though he was kind of falsely accused. He didn't actually kill the guy who got killed in the robbery that he was part of. And then in prison, somehow he grew immensely fat. And now he hardly can move for all the flesh that surrounds him. He writes this stupid book about socialist theories, which are total bunk. And... He basically lives on the charity of a wealthy old woman now. He's he's pathetic. But in Conrad's world, that's the best thing you can do. He doesn't harm anyone. He doesn't get mad. He's found his position, and it may be a pathetic position. Yeah, but it's a hypocritical one. Obviously, but tell me one person that is not hypocritical in this book, and Stevie doesn't count. No, Stevie does count. He's not hypocritical. He fails, but at least he's not hypocritical. That's why it's such a tragedy that he's the one who dies. That's why the book is basically a book of portions. You might accuse it of being inconsistent because it jumps from person to person, and then uh, it's very non-sequitur at some times. But out of all these long portions, the longest one... Uh, the longest one where it's contiguous is the one where Mrs. Verloc thinks about Stevie and thinks about how he's dead now and how her husband killed him. Stevie's death is the center of the novel. It's the central tragedy. I wouldn't agree. I think Stevie may be purer than other characters. And certainly his death is a tragedy that this one pure person has to die. But at the same time, we can't take Stevie Seriously, even Conrad doesn't give him that much of a sanctified description of a somehow pure and noble imbecility, if you can say that. Stevie is still just as much part of the grotesqueries. The way he behaves, this very excitable manner and the aggression that he has, that doesn't make Stevie this kind of, yeah... Not noble savage, but noble imbecile. So Yeah, that was what I was going for with that. Yeah. <laughs> so you're basically saying we should just not take disabled people seriously and we should just disregard their experiences of the world. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that... It just sounds like that. I'm talking about Conrad's description of Stevie in this world. And he's just as valid a character as the non-disabled characters. Yeah. Definitely. But that means that his point of view is just as pathetic hypocritical and doomed as with the other characters. But at least he's the only one who is consistent in his ethics, in his um, in his moral outlook. And it's a consistency that no one of us would try to strive for, is it? Well, no, no, but exactly. still, <laughs> even if 
good men fail, that means that that doesn't detract from their goodness. But Stevie is not a good man. Like not he, in the secret agent. He's a good man who's manipulated into doing bad things. He's not a good man. He is a child, maybe. He is, at least from Conrad's... So you're saying con- children are evil? Children are certainly not good. We all know that. Oh, damn, yeah. True. <laughs> no, what I'm trying to say is that Conrad is... Quite cynical, I think, in the way he but definitely, definitely describes the characters in the world. And Stevie's role in this world is, in the best case, a kind of a sacrificial lamb that has to die because pure thoughts or pure goals in this world cannot survive. But I still think M- Michael is, is not a good character. He's, Certainly not. But he, 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 he doesn't even try to change the world anymore. He only wants to be sent off to Marienbad by this older woman who dotes on him and he only wants his pleasures in life and talk about how horrible it was to be in prison. So who's better then? Ossipon, who's mainly in it for uh, pussy? Yeah. He, he, that way he's the most Bond-like character, you could say. The <laughs> cold, unfeeling sociopath who just wants to bet a lot of women. Karl Jund, who's even described as a kind of monstrous character who revels in his evil nature, but is just as ineffectual and pathetic yeah. as Michaelis is. The lock, because he at least prides himself that he's working for something good. He's working for the stability of Europe. There's so many passages where he thinks of himself as the great secret agent Delta who worked for the late Baron Stott Wartheim and who helped to thwart so many plots and save the lives of so many people. And this is obviously the worst case of hypocrisy that we can find in the novel. The Locke's thoughts about himself and the way we perceive him to actually be. So none of the revolutionaries and none of the establishment characters are really good. So Michaelis is maybe the, the, as I said, maybe just the nicest one. So maybe we can find common ground when we say that he's the least bad of them. Maybe. But what... I actually wanted to say, and I think our discussion is, has grown just as confused as the timeline of Conrad's book, <laughs> yeah. is that the assistant commissioner is the one character who actually gets what he wants. He, oh yeah, that's where we were. Yeah, he wanted Pialis to be saved. He succeeds in that. He wanted to use the knowledge about the Locke's agent status to kind of put Vladimir and the foreign embassy in their place. He succeeds in that. And he doesn't want to have uh, an argument with his wife. And he succeeds in that. Yeah, that is a really interesting aspect of the novel where Conrad is ahead of his time, I feel, by a hundred years, where he shows that actually the assistant commissioner knows Michaelis privately and his wife is very good friends with Michaelis' benefactor. And so he desperately tries to keep the guy out of trouble because he realizes that otherwise the old lady and his wife would never forgive him. So the establishment is bound up with these anarchists, these terrorists. And when you see these pictures of smiling US congressmen shaking the hands of Mujahideen in Afghanistan in the 1980s, uh, that is fairly reminiscent of that. Also, the establishment or the characters representing the establishment are just as ineffectual in their ways. I mentioned that the assistant commissioner gets what he wants, But yeah, if he's 
that bound up in private terms with that world, it's not a very representative position for someone who should work for the good of the whole country. And Heat, his um, subordinate. Thank you. Bum boy. <laughs> and Heat. Bag. What? That in a public school kind of way, which also it's includes the... a lot of bumming, but still. And Heat, his subordinate, is also maybe his bottom. <laughs> His sub. And he... You could say he's in heat. Okay. With his penis. Okay. This is going nowhere. <laughs> Just as uh, any uh, anarchist plot that we might have. <laughs> no. Heat, his subordinate, maybe does more for this idea of actually protecting people working against terrorists. But his motives are also far from pure. There's this great scene where the commissioner and Heat talk to each other. And basically, it's a very long chapter. Although the conversation itself is not that long, because after each sentence, there's a long paragraph or more than one paragraph about the thoughts these characters have at the moment, about their motives, about what they think about the other person. And as we said, the assistant commissioner has his own rather non-lofty aims and Heat, on the other hand, mainly just despises the assistant commissioner because he thinks he's, he doesn't deserve the job. And so they talk to each other and it's quite clear that none of them wants to give in in some way and none of this goes anywhere to solve the situation. It's very, especially that scene is very hard to read. Though you already said that Heat maybe works a bit more towards the lofty ideals of policing. But then he suddenly reveals that he doesn't want to arrest the professor because he knows the professor is up to no good, but arresting him now would not follow the rules of the game. So he sees all of this as some kind of cosmic battle between the forces of good and order and evil and chaos. And he's an agent of good. And of course, he needs to thwart the agent of evil eventually, just not right now. And at the same time, we also get to know that he actually also employs the lock because he knows that he's a double agent, but he uses him for his own aims to kind of keep these anarchists under control. So the lock is a triple agent. Indeed. And that makes the whole connection between the establishment, the government on the one hand, and the anarchists and socialists on the other hand, even more convoluted, but also makes clear that these are both sides of the same thing and none of them really want to change anything about the situation because they at least may think of themselves as heroes or villains in some way that no matter which side they're on they're rather pathetic and egotistical characters so as you can tell the subtitle a simple tale could not be chosen more inappropriately it's an impressively convoluted book about spying which is an impressively convoluted subject in some ways it's maybe an even better representation of espionage than the James Bond novels, because espionage doesn't consist of cool, smooth, well-trained guys doing things. It's much more chaotic than that, and often people don't know what they do. That's actually an interesting point. This was, after all, published in 1907. At that point, the genre of the spy novel was just beginning to develop. And in the beginning, the spy novel was very much still part of this adventure story. So the spies, especially British spies in the early spy fictions, 
were still these kind of Victorian gentlemen who thought valiantly against those dastardly Russians, Huns, whatever. And espionage was still seen as part of the gentlemanly war against all enemies of the empire. But obviously espionage in itself is far from valiant. So that even at that time, Conrad saw that and managed to use this dark side of spying, connecting it to the baser aspects of the human character and to this very nihilistic worldview where everything is in tones of gray. There's no black or white. Everything has the same sort of mushy color and that is far from any sort of romanticizing the role of the spy. So that also makes Conrad's tale ahead of its time, definitely. And also Conrad's style is infamously complex, you might say convoluted. This is one of the few novels that I can think of where you actually get an insight into most of the characters. So the focalization moves freely between Heat, the assistant commissioner, Verloc, and then the other anarchists, and you have a hard time keeping up with this train of thought, but you also have a hard time keeping up with the timeline because he jumps back without announcing it and then suddenly Verloc is alive even though we thought he was already dead and then it turns out, oh, he isn't actually dead and it's, whew, it's quite the read. So, should you read this rather than one of Conrad's maybe more classic works like, I don't know, Heart of Darkness? I would actually say yes, because despite the complexities of the novel, it's fairly short, fairly approachable. It's comparatively restrained and comparatively exciting. I found it very exciting. There's these constant twists and turns where, oh, suddenly you don't even see how the bomb is built. You just hear how it was blown up. And then suddenly, oh, it wasn't Verluck who was blown up, it was Stevie. And then there's these twists and turns which really keep you hooked. And especially in comparison with Heart of Darkness. Heart of Darkness was a very important book in its time and continues to be a very important book with regards to race questions and colonization and in this post-colonial world that we live in, it is important to study. But The Secret Agent, I feel, can maybe only now be really appreciated for the masterpiece that it is. We live in a world that is shaped by terrorism. Whether or not it actually should be, could be disputed. Especially when you go to Britain. Britain is a very paranoid society and the US as well. All of the Western world basically lives in fear of terrorist attacks basically constantly and it is partly at least a valid fear. There are people who want to perpetrate such attacks. The Secret Agent is a very timely novel for our days. I would definitely agree and what I really liked about the novel is that in its complexity there are also many aspects that are only mentioned or hinted at briefly but deal with very important topics. We mentioned briefly the role of women in Victorian society and how the role of women in this whole game of espionage is a very specific one. We never mentioned the role of London as a setting, which is described in very bleak urban terms. The mass of people everywhere, the city that never sleeps, and it's not necessarily a good thing. And that also is something in the 21st century, which is connected to this idea of terrorism of terrorizing the mega cities of the west speaking of the role of women the passage just 
as Mrs. Verloc is about to kill her husband and then does it, is so complex and it's so much about the role of women in Victorian society and how family relates to that. I've hardly ever come across such a complex discussion of that in any work of Victorian or Edwardian literature, even the ones who explicitly deal with feminist issues, and to find it in this supposed spy story was very surprising to me, but very intriguing. So I think we can both agree that we both think that the complexity of this not at all simple tale makes it such a great read and one that gets even more complexity from a contemporary point of view. So we really recommend reading The Secret Agent as a tale that is not only about espionage, but all the discourses that are connected to it. And it's really a very modern and, from our point of view, even postmodern tale. But if our description of the book is rather dense and rather depressing because it has an incredibly bleak outlook of the world. Maybe you want to read something else. And especially I would recommend a short story by one of my favorite writers from the Victorian era, or any era really, by Oscar Wilde, Lord Arthur Savile's Crime. It deals with a man from high society, a kind of dandy character, who learns from a soothsayer that he is destined to become a murderer. And so he thinks, well, if I have to, I'd better get it out of the way now. And he wants to murder someone. It's a hilarious short story. And it has a connection to the secret agent because one of the ways that he thinks about killing someone is, well, maybe with a bomb. And he has help in that by a gentleman from the Royal Society of Anarchists, which is the most hilarious thing I could ever imagine in relation to terrorism. So Lord Arthur Savile's crime is one of the most entertaining and best things by Oscar Wilde that you could read. I actually have two recommendations, I think. One of them goes in the same direction setting-wise as The Secret Agent, and that is The Man Who Was Thursday by G.K. Chesterton. It also deals with anarchists, a very colorful cast of anarchists and the policemen fighting them. But instead of the depressing nihilism of Conrad, Chesterton manages to find more humor in the absurd situation of this anarchist society and also some sort of mysticism that is connected to that. On the other hand, if you actually want to have even more depressing spy stories, I would recommend John Le Carré, one of the great spy novelists of the 20th century, and one book in particular called The Looking Glass War. And that is definitely one of the most depressing, de-glamorizing books about spying that you can imagine. And reading it makes clear that espionage is far from an exotic or glamorous pastime. It's a very, very dirty, dark and depressing job. So if you don't jump off a bridge after reading all of that, we hope that you come back for our next episode. In the meantime, you can, of course, write to us. You find all our contact details on outsideofadogcast.com. You can write suggestions, you can write criticism of our episodes. You can also just write if you really like the podcast. And if you do, why don't you recommend it? Recommend it to your friends. Recommend it to your enemies. Recommend it to your employer at the embassy who pays you for being a triple agent. 
You can also find us on Facebook. You can find the episode on iTunes. You can also rate us there. And for the next episode, actually, we have kind of a special guest. Uh, I no, think no. we should leave that as a surprise, maybe. But what we can definitely say is the novel that we're going to read for next time. Uh, what's it going to be, Jonas? It is going to be Neuromancer, one of those newfangled science fiction stories are here. Thank you very much for listening. For more information, visit outsideofadogcast.com. <clears throat> anyway, <clears throat> um, why don't you join us at the microphone? Yeah. Do you want to have a seat? Yeah. We, we should rise in the presence of a lady. No, no, don't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I want to be tall. <laughs> <laughs> oh.